This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And this is our monthly segment called Writing Wrongs with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. By way of disclosure, because it's just so much fun to say that, uh, I continue to work as the uh, representative of the ACLU legal department here in Western Massachusetts. Carol Rose, thank you so much for being with us. I really, really wanted to talk to you and share with uh, those who are with us today uh, the story of what has happened in North Brookfield, which is, by the way, a small town in Massachusetts, which raised a very big issue that is important to all of us. So for those of us who do not know the case as well as you. Tell us what happened in North Brookfield, and then I want to get to the big picture of LGBTQ rights, particularly in light of what was a fabulous celebration here uh, for Gay Pride Day just a few weeks ago. So let's go to North Brookfield, if you would, please. Carol. Absolutely. And hello, Bill, Buzz. Um, it's so great to be back and so great to be here. And Bill, I'm so glad you still say you work at the ACLU. Um, so <laughs> this is a really interesting story. Let me start like with the positive end, which is mark your calendars for June 24th, because we're going to have small town pride on the town common in Brookfield. And uh, that's really good news. So, so this is a story really of intergenerational change is sort of how I see it. So what happened is in late March, the North Brookfield Select Board actually approved uh, a permit for the Rural Justice Network's request to host a small town pride, and they including a drag performance. Um, but later, you know, a couple weeks later, the Select Board looked at it again and said, well, we're going to rescind our permission. We're not going to let them have a permit. We're not going to let them because we're worried that something that includes a drag performance uh, is just wrong in our view. We think that's wrong. Um, so obviously, um, that's a free that sends off all sorts of alarm bells for the ACLU in terms of freedom of speech and as well as equality and equal the law. So we sent a letter to the select board and, and sort of laid out the state of the current law, which is, you know, a town can't decide who gets to march in a public space because they like or don't like the message. Um, you know, the permits have to be equally applied, um, and so. That's particularly true when a town decides they want to discriminate based on the political speech or the political views of a group that feels like they're being discriminated against and they want to have an opportunity to be seen and heard. As we know over the years, that's so important for equal rights and for the LGBTQ equal rights movement of which the ACLU and many of our allies are a part. Um, and so we sent the letter and sort of set it forth. And the good news is the select board uh, did the right thing. Um, took it under advisement, came back, and decided to restore the parade permit. So the celebration and the parade is going forward on June 24th, small town pride uh, in North Brookfield. So it's a good news story, but it's also a good reminder of the importance of um, standing up for equal rights for everyone. And the particularly right now, Bill uh, and Buzz, in the light of the increased attacks across the country on LGBTQ equality and specifically against transgender people. I, uh, so this is in the context of a larger I, movement. I, I see that. I also think that it's important to point out, and I don't mean to uh, be here telling the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts what a, what a wonderful <laughs> job she does and the organization does, but I do point out that but for the intervention of the civil rights and civil liberties groups like the ACLU, this parade, this performance might well not have happened in North Brookfield, Massachusetts in 2023 based on well, they thought they could get away with it and it was okay to discriminate. Right. Well, and, you know, I think part, a lot of times these things are just done unthinkingly, right? You know, oh, I'm just going to do that because 
because I don't know that they say I think it's wrong. I think they don't think about it. Um, and so that's why these moments become important reminders for all of us to, to know the, what the law is and to know what our rights are under the law. And, you know, so much of the history of freedom in this country has been that the principles were laid out in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, you know, and then somebody heard it and said, I want to apply that to myself, uh, that right to vote, that right to speak, that right to have equality under the law. And different groups heard it along the years and applied it to themselves and we're seeing that evolution as we move to a more free society and it's really exciting but for a lot of people it can feel scary and that's why it's so important that we go back to first principles and apply the equal rights of equality under the law and freedom of speech under both the federal and the state constitution. Um, people have a right to you know, go and be in a parade and have a drag performance in the parade. That's a freedom of expression issue um, that once the permit, once the streets are made open and publicly available to different groups, we have to apply the law equally. Carol Willis, Executive Director of the ACLU of Massachusetts, you use the phrase a small town pride, which raises two, two questions, well, actually a comment and a question. The comment is that Tip O'Neill, uh, former Speaker of the House, longtime uh, representative from Massachusetts, used to say that all politics is local. And, <laughs> and we, we borrowed that f expression from the Speaker and said all civil liberties are local. They all start with a, a case or a dispute that happens somewhere, you, and often in a small town. And I'm wondering if you'd could care, you would care to comment on that, and in particular, uh, tie that into that phrase you just used, small town pride. Oh, you know, Bill, I'm so glad you raised that, because people often ask me, you know, as I, I in other, when I'm in other states at conferences and things, why is it that Massachusetts um, is so free um, and so, you know, progressive um, and so prosperous, actually, uh, in so many ways? And, you know, my response is that because we have town government, uh, small town government, where we we are experiments in democracy. People can engage with their elected representatives because they're their neighbors um, and their friends, and they're in small town government. And I think um, that becomes a learning, um, you know, laboratory for democracy when we have that. And you know, that along with the beautifully written constitu state constitution written by John Adams, which was the basis for the federal constitution. So I always think about the John Adams constitution combined with our city and town government um, and way of self-governing. I think those are the kind of small town pride moments where, yes, sometimes when lay people are in positions of authority, they don't always know the laws. And that's why the ACLU is here, not just to sue people, but as a resource. You know, we sent a letter and laid out what the law is, right? You, we start with public education and educating of uh, officials and of all of us to participate in democracy. Our Advocates Academy here at the ACLU of Massachusetts is just taking off. You know, people are learning their rights and how to access their government. So I think the small town part of Massachusetts is one of the things that makes us so both safe and free. Yeah, I'd point out that the gay marriage case, the lead plaintiff from Northampton, uh, and that... And that the case that established, it wasn't a, uh, a case that I did with the ACLU and Wendy Sibison, and uh, it, the mm -hmm. case that, is, that first established uh, uh, the principle of equality in uh, disputes over custody and children, which eventually led to the uh, gay marriage decision, that came from Greenfield. 
I mean, that's... Right. And you were on that case, Bill. You were one of the lawyers on that. It was one of the very first cases here in Massachusetts. And, you know, each case is incremental and lays the groundwork. And that's the point is people here, like, I have a right to equality. And then, well, my group does too. And then, you know, women heard it. People of color heard it. And formerly enslaved people heard it and said, I want those rights, whether it's the right to vote or equality before the law, or right to marriage, right to march in a parade, um, all of these things. And now, most recently, transgender people are hearing it and applying it to themselves. And it's so important that, um, you know, discrimination against people who choose to express themselves through, you know, drag is it's just inconsistent with our state and federal constitutions. Um, and that's why, you know, each iterative group that applies the rights that we all hold and cherish so dear to themselves, we become more safe and more free and more equal um, and more prosperous. And honestly, we really are a beacon for that very reason. I think that something you just said about happened North Brookfield, uh, giving uh, the select board there, the decision makers on the parade permit there, uh, I think the benefit of the doubt. And you said sometimes people just don't know. People sometimes okay. just don't think. And I think, I think that one reaction for, and this is generational, is that, well, drag is something inappropriate for children to see. So we're not going to allow it on our streets. I think that that kind of mindset is what leads to this kind of initial decision. Now reverse, congratulations to the down for doing the right thing, having been informed, having gotten legal uh, opinion, the ACLU having intervened. But I'm wondering if you would go back to what you mentioned just a moment ago, Carol Rose, which is this intergenerational change and the need for uh, uh, education and greater understanding, because I think that's at the core of this. Yeah, no, fear is a really big motivator, you know, and I think, you know, as, as a parent myself, I want to, I want to have some control over what my kids are exposed to. And I, and I do exercise that control. That's a parental right, but it's not the state's business to do that. It's my business as a parent to do that. And so nobody's saying that, you know, you have to take your kids to the pride parade. Um, but what it is, is when you open the public streets to a public event, like you do for a whole number of things, right, that we support, um, uh, or in some that we don't support, uh, but you have to permit people to have their speech and, and freedom of speech and freedom of expression, even for thoughts and things we don't agree with or don't like or make us uncomfortable. That's really the core of, of democracy. Um, and, you know, you think about repressive regimes where they restrict people's speech. I've lived in some of those places and, you know, you, you can't just march down the street and say what you believe or express yourself. Um, it, it, it isn't a place where I would want to be, where I would want to live. And so while these challenges are difficult for us sometimes as we confront things on a personal level it's not for the government to get in there and Im impose its morals um that's for each of us to do as parents uh with our own kids but if, if i may carol rose this is buzz uh hi, so for, hi so in terms of educating the public when can a municipality properly uh restrict a permitted uh, a request for a permit and say no uh, what types yeah. of factors may they consider Oh, okay. So like reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. Everybody's heard of that phrase, right? So what if it's like you can't march at midnight um, or you can't be too loud? I mean, there's ways that a city can intervene um, to do restrictions. What they can't do is to say it's because I don't like your viewpoint, right? That's political speech. That's viewpoint restriction. It's sort of the most protected under the Constitution because it's political, right? So what the founders of the country wanted was to make sure we had political speech. Um, but there are lots of restrictions. You know, if another group is already there and you want to have the permit at the same time, it should be a first come, first serve kind of thing. So so as long as they're neutral as to content, there are a lot of restrictions.
restrictions that cities can put on permits. Um, what they can't do is do things though like um, say uh, you ha you have to pay for our security detail or uh, because again if the streets are open the, it's up to the state to provide security. They can't say you have to get a whole lot of insurance. So you don't want to put in sort of a poll tax or kind of financial barriers so that only rich people can march. Um, that wouldn't be good either. I'm speaking now as a not rich person who wouldn't be able to pay. <laughs> a little self-interest here. No, but seriously, um, you you want to you want to not have barriers that are based on people's um, socioeconomic status or things like that. And you can't use those, those time, place, and manner restrictions as a an excuse or a way to right. prevent uh, view or to to allow viewpoint or uh, discrimination or content-based discrimination. Um, yeah, the courts will ferret those out in a heartbeat. They love to do that. Well, let me ask you this, Carlos, because I, I want to uh, just put a, I put a pin in something you just said, and that is you've lived in repressive regimes. You have, mm. uh, and you yeah. did it as a professional because you had a career before becoming an attorney and the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. I think our listeners would like to hear a bit about that, if uh -huh. you'd care to share it. Oh, yeah, no. So I was I was the newspaper reporter, and I got to cover, uh, I went to a lot of conflict zones. Um, and so what was so interesting is it made me very patriotic. It made me realize that the grant, the, the freedoms that we have in this country, you know, we, we can lose them. We take them for granted. I did. Uh, and so I came back and went to law school uh, later, uh, after having been a journalist for over a decade, and you know, um, I'm still very patriotic. I mean, I'm I'm very uh, I'm an ACLU person, so my values are pretty clear and out there on my sleeve. But I also am there because of a deep patriotism and an appreciation for the freedoms that we have in this country. And I think, you know, travel is a wonderful thing. I was fortunate enough to be able to do it as my profession for a while. Um, but it opens our eyes, makes us realize and cherish and fight for. Uh, the rights and liberties that we have in this country. At least that's the impact it had on me. I hope I don't use this phrase ill-advisedly, but you were, are you at liberty to tell us where you were and uh, what you covered as a reporter? Oh, in lots of, I was in lots of places. I did a long stint in the AFPAC region um, and then all along the um, Hindu Kush border. I covered a lot of refugee situations. I was in Northern Ireland. Uh, so the Middle East, um, yeah, so kind of all over. Um, but you know, throughout those those times, you, know, you see a whole range of things that we, you know, you want to bring home good ideas, um, good practices that we can learn from. So it's not all grim and bad; it's actually wonderful. Um, but in terms of governments and the way governments operate, it's so easy for authoritarian regimes to first repress speech um, and certainly to repress equality. Um, and when you see that happening. Um, Again, you realize how fragile these rights are. Um, so yeah, so I was in a lot of different places, all interesting and all informative. Were you in danger at various points or no? Um, <laughs> yeah, probably yes. Um, I don't think about it very much. Um, and I think in general, my overall view is that when I've traveled to a lot of places, I've been taken in and uh, given hospitality. And I always wonder if I'm doing the same thing when I see foreign people from other countries on my streets. Am I inviting them into my house for tea? Um, it's a good lesson. We're speaking with Carol Rose. She is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. This is our monthly segment with her, Writing Wrongs. We're going to take a quick break, and we come back, we're going to talk about one of those cases, a local case from Springfield, where our rights, all of our rights to privacy are at stake. We'll be right back. For purple 
mountain's majesty above the fruit. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver? How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder? Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things? Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. Come on over to the co-op. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. This is her monthly time with her, her monthly time with us called Writing Wrongs. There was a decision or a non-decision of what's called a denial of cert, a denial of certiorari, that is a denial of review by the United States Supreme Court this past week in a case that came from Springfield which and came through the court systems in Massachusetts uh, mm-hmm. that raises very, very important, very disturbing questions, it sets forth a concerning uh, narrative of police power and comes to ha- – sorry, not to, not to uh, uh, bury the lead here in some ways – but doesn't come to a real resolution because the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. Carol Rose, can you tell us about this case, Moore versus the United States? Right. So the the Moore case is what I call the creepy spying case, um, just by shorthand. As you said, that's a technical legal term. Um, And the court refused to take up the challenge. So this is a a situation where our client, um, Miss Daphne Moore, uh, in uh, Springfield, um, her daughter, she had a troubled daughter who came to live with her, and the police uh, wanted to do an investigation of the daughter. Um, and they couldn't get a good view of the house. They couldn't really surveil it. So they put up a 
camera on a pole, a pole camera, and they, that, that continuously yeah. moved, and they could control it remotely, so they could shift where it was moving, it could get different angles on the house, and the yard, and the garden, and people coming and going, or being on the porch, these kinds of things, and they surveilled this family for eight months, eight months, without a warrant. I mean, it's it's just crazy, and, and then gathered evidence. So, needless to say, um, the lawyers uh, for the daughters, they arrested her on drug um, and charges and things like that. Um, they wanted to suppress all of the evidence that came from the film. And then in the meantime, they came up and they said, now we're going to nab the mother too, our client, our ACLU client, uh, because she was associated with the daughter who'd moved in with her. <laughs> and they'd caught their comings and goings uh, on the surveillance cameras. Um, and so what we said is, you know, you really need to go, you need to require a warrant uh, when that happens. It's really important that uh, the police can't just put up a poll camera that can monitor us without having any warrant requirement, a reasonable suspicion that there's a crime going on. It's a pretty, frankly, low threshold, but at least it's some kind of a check and balance um, on that, and that this was an opportunity for the court to resolve that. And what's so interesting is that the lower courts here in Massachusetts, uh, you know, ruled initially, I think the lowest court ruled that, yeah, that that would be a violation of their Fourth Amendment uh, rule against unreasonable search and seizure. The first uh, circuit took it up and then split and divided and couldn't decide they had an equal vote because someone was recused or not available. So they had a three to three in the first circuit. And at the same time, the courts across the country are divided on whether or not these kind of poll cameras should require a warrant before the police can use them against us. Um, and so we had a split in the fifth circuit. We had a between the fifth and the first. We have a split between some of the state Supreme Courts um, and things like that. And so we, the ACLU, said, when you have a law that's that uh, unclear, such a patchwork, we go to the U.S. Supreme Court to try to give us some guidance, to try to say, where should the lines be drawn? Um, and that's what we were hoping for. And sadly, we found it just last week, the court refused to take it up. They're too busy taking away affirmative action and abortion rights and things like that, I guess. But the court refused to take it up and to set the record and make a clear record. So we're kind of back to square one, which is we don't know what the law is exactly. Um, under our state constitution, if we were in a state court, the evidence would have been suppressed. But in a federal court, we don't know. Right, because in the state court, the states are uh, governed by both the state constitution, which can have more expansive rights than the federal. In the federal courts, the federal courts are only uh, governed by the federal constitution. Uh, I, I would like to make uh, one uh, point, uh, which is that the poll cameras are especially mm. creepy, to use that uh, uh, technical legal term, because they operate 24 hours a day. It's constant right. surveillance. Even at night, right. It could even pick up stuff at night, people coming and going. Um, uh, you know, and now that we have like base surveillance that could be put on some of these, I mean, hopefully not, but you never know. And they can zoom in to very small things, you know, the person reading a newspaper and things like that. Um, and also what was troubling about this case, Bill, I just have to tell you, is one of the reasons they wanted to put up the pole camera was because there was enough foliage and things around the yard that they thought that they built to create privacy. And the, the camera was a way to break through that. Um, so this is just really a concerning, you know, issue on, um, and that we need to continue to fight for. I mean, these rights never stay won, but they need to be won. And then we have to hold the line on that. So, 
you know, the, the law is unsettled. We've had a recent case where the, um, it was a similar situation. There were two recent cases. Uh, one was the Jones case where uh, the question is whether the police could put a GPS tracker on your car without a warrant and track you wherever you went. Um, and the court ruled that you can't do that. And the moment the court ruled that was, I think it was Scalia asked the question, could you, could the police put this on my car and track my movements? And the answer was yes. And so the judges immediately said, okay, you can't do that. So if you could make it apply to the Supreme Court judges, you know, or justices, then that's a way to win. Um, and then the other case that the ACLU brought both uh, locally and nationally were about cell phone location data, whether the government can track your cell phone, which is constantly pinging to a tower, even when it's off. Um, and could get that record without you knowing it and use it to track your whereabouts without a warrant. So we're not trying to prevent law enforcement from having the tools they need, you know, to carry out investigations. We're just saying you have to play by the rules. You have to get a probable cause warrant. You can't use these technologies based on just some kind of a random hunch. And that's what the Moore case was about, was get a warrant. Don't yes. just have, just don't assume police that because you want to surveil someone 24 hours a day for months and months and months and months and months that you can just do it and not even get permission. You can just decide to do it. It's a question of should right. the courts decide or do the, does law enforcement decide? And nobody's above the law. And so what we're saying is we have to have a system of checks and balance in place uh, to make sure that if, if you, if there is a criminal investigation or a, a reasonable probable cause, then you can go and get a warrant. Again, it's not very hard to do. Um, and that way, uh, we have some kind of a check that these things aren't used against, you know, whether it's in a domestic violence situation or to go after a political opponent or because there's some colleague you don't like. I mean, there's all sorts of abuses that, of course, as humans, we're all subject to those kinds of things. And so we want to put in rules um, like a warrant requirement to make sure that they're really used for appropriate and proper law enforcement purposes. The Fourth Amendment guarantee, and I'm I will not put guarantee in air quotes quite yet, but the Fourth Amendment guarantee against unreasonable searches and seizures, which has as a presumption the need to get a warrant, I think is something that we may not be able to all articulate uh, all the time or so readily. But this sense that we have a zone of privacy is something that I think is essential to our sense of ourselves in in community. And I'm wondering what your view is in, about the effect of a case like Moore, which says, well, take your chances. What that does to us as a society. Right. Well, right. <laughs> the paranoia runs deep, right? We don't want to be in a place where we're behaving as though we're watched all the time because there's so many expressive things that we do. Um, you know, that's why we pull the shades, for goodness sake. When people say, I have nothing to hide, it's like, well, then why why do you pull the shades at night? Because you don't want people looking in your house, right? So part of it is there's a zone of privacy that we need to have as human beings, um, whether we, however we use to choose to use that time, but you know, that's where expressive activities, art, singing in the shower, you know, whatever you want to do, your poetry, um, anything. We need to have that ability of solitude. Otherwise we're going into some sort of a dystopian, you know, place as a society and as a species that I think is bad for our mental health and I think is bad for democracy. Um, and I think that to live a life that's truly free, we have to have a zone of privacy. Um, and certainly, the places where we live have to be a place that are free from that kind of constant 24-hour uh, hidden surveillance without our awareness. And without any court having decided that you are subject to being intruded upon by law enforcement. 
Right. I mean, you know, technology poses all sorts of threats to our liberty and people can become very, you know, whether we're talking surveillance cameras or large language models or all these things that we're talking about. But, you know, the laws and the first principles that we have that keep us of human rights um, and, and human dignity, those those really become a North Star and a touchstone. And whenever I start to feel like, oh my gosh, it's just too overwhelming. If we go back to the basic principles that have kept us safe and free for all this time, um, I think that we do ourselves a service um, and it becomes less chaotic feeling and a lot less anxious feeling because we do have a lot of protections and all we need to do is to make sure that we're enforcing them and, and using the tools of democracy, whether it's marching in the streets on Pride Day or whether it's going to the courts. Um, and we'll go back again and again because that's what the ACLU does. Um, you know, we never stop defending people's rights and liberties because that's what makes it worth living. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Carol Rose, the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. This is her monthly time with us, Writing Wrongs. Thanks so much, Carol, for your time. Thanks for your leadership. Always a pleasure, Bill. Buzz, everybody. Thanks, Take Carol. Care. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The victim in the deadly motorcycle accident in West Springfield on Tuesday is now being identified. 24-year-old Edwin Perez of Chicopee died due to his injuries after crashing on the northbound side of I-91, just past exits 10A and 10B in West Springfield. The cause of the crash remains under investigation. The East Hampton Education Association is questioning the district on why they used outside contractors as registered behavior technicians through the field center in Northampton. The topic came up at Tuesday's virtual school committee meeting. Registered behavior technicians are paraprofessionals who provide direct support in a small group setting or one-on-one. -on -one. The Gazette reports the district pays between $18 to $20 per hour, but pays the three registered technicians from the field center more than $50 per hour. Superintendent Allison LeClaire said in an email that no grievance has been filed with her office. However, the paper reports the union is preparing a charge against the district, which will be filed with the State Department of Labor Relations, alleging violations of the contract and state labor law. After last week's freeze, Waitley's River Valley Farm has lost their blueberry crop for this year. Of over 10,000 bushes of blueberries, 70 to 80 percent succumbed to the freeze, resulting in a devastating loss to the farm. Owner Robert Sobieski has started a GoFundMe as his family relies on the blueberry crop to sustain the farm business. Sobieski explained that the funds will be used to sustain farm operations and invest in frost protection equipment. Mostly sunny and breezy today, a little brisk with a high of 64 to 68. Clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 36 to 42. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 70 to 74, and temperatures in the upper 70s and low 80s over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rachivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El superintendente de las escuelas públicas de Holyoke, Anthony Soto, fue llamado ante los líderes estatales de educación el martes para brindar una actualización sobre los esfuerzos para sacar al sistema de escuelas públicas de la ciudad de la Administración Judicial Estatal en la que ha estado desde 2015. El superintendente Soto describió los cambios positivos en Holyoke durante la última década, incluidas las tasas de graduación, los esfuerzos de resonificación y un personal más diverso. Sin embargo, la gran pregunta en la mente de todos sigue sin respuesta. El martes, la reunión de la Junta del Departamento de Educación Primaria y Secundaria presentó a los funcionarios de las escuelas públicas de Holyoke, incluido el superintendente Soto, para obtener actualizaciones sobre el progreso del distrito. Holyoke es uno de los tres distritos actualmente bajo administración judicial estatal y lo ha estado desde 2015 porque el estado creía que el distrito tenía un desempeño críticamente bajo. En la reunión, el superintendente Soto describió varias cifras clave, incluidas las tasas de graduación en aumento, las tasas de abandono escolar decrecientes y una mayor participación en cursos avanzados. Pero respecto a la gran pregunta de cuándo el distrito estará fuera de la administración judicial y qué pasos tomará para llegar allí, no hay una respuesta clara. El comisionado Jeffrey Riley también dijo que continuará reuniéndose regularmente con el superintendente Soto, el alcalde Joshua García y los funcionarios de la ciudad para revisar el desempeño. Luego, en 2024 o 2025, se reunirá con funcionarios de la ciudad y del estado para discutir posibles vías de salida. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is our monthly segment. Have faith. We have with us on a rotating basis a number of members of the spiritual, and we're going to enlarge this to non-spiritual communities or non-religious observances as well. Uh, we have with us at this date, on this Thursday in particular, Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware in Ware. Carol, are you with us? Is technology? I am. Glad to be here. Okay, so what we wanted to talk about today, and you're going to try to join us with a, a neighbor and friend of yours, uh, we wanted to talk about spiritual practices that are not technically, well, I'm not quite sure how to put this, spiritual. But tell us what you mean by spiritual practices beyond sitting in the pews and uh, having a relationship with what is, I think, in your tradition referred to as Uh, well, God. So, talk to us about talk to us about this more expansive view of spiritualism. Yeah. So, as as a uh, chaplain at the hospital for many years, I talked to lots of people who had all walks of life and all walks of spirituality, uh, agnostics, atheists, non-believers, whatever they called them. I just accepted them and loved them. And then I talked with them about where they receive their hope from in the world. And so that, to me, is linked to spirituality, uh, but not necessarily to spirituality and a religion, you know. So um, when I read in the Gazette about my neighbor, Amber, who is with us now, uh, Amber Bay Bemac, uh, that she is a filmmaker and a new neighbor uh, here. So grateful to have you as neighbors in Northampton. 
uh, and I read in the Gazette that she had received a Guggenheim Award for her documentary film work. So um, I didn't know that yet about her, uh, but I'm so glad that you're here, Amber, and that you uh, can be with us and talk about, because uh, you, have, you have a spiritual path and you also do filmmaking. So my main question is, uh, how is making films an act of faith for you, Amber? And Amber, to share that, yes, thank you for unmuting. Talk to us. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's just, it's really lovely to be here. Um, how is it an act of faith? I think that um, making films, or we could just even call it making art, um, for me is a way of processing being alive. And so it's a necessary thing that I need to um exist <laughs> and <laughs> existence is an act of faith in a way because the world is so insane and um there's so much input and so much suffering and um you know to to keep going and to keep um staying rooted in beliefs around justice and equity um just doing that is an act of faith in the possibility that um, my like small life couldn't could make any difference. And so it's kind of a roundabout thing, but I, I do think that um, the filmmaking is just a modality to to stay connected and, and to understand experience. So I have a question for both of you, uh, both uh, Amber Bumek, filmmaker and uh, the uh, pastor of the United Church of Ware, Carol Bull. Let me start with you, Carol, and then I'll ask you, Amber, the same question. Uh, you mentioned being at the hospital and being the uh, uh, spiritual advisor, uh, uh, the chaplain at the hospital for many years, and you had to deal with situations and talk to people who were facing death. Um, and I'm, you also say you spoke to many people who did not have a religious uh, belief or foundation. And I'm wondering whether there is something spiritual beyond religion that you found in those conversations. And then to when we get to you, Amber, the question is when you look at the uh, crucial questions uh, that face us as a society and as people, whether that experience for you and for the subject of your films, whether that brings them closer to something that is at a core of human existence. Let me start with you first, please, uh, Reverend Carol Bull. Yeah, I mean, I get the word I would use would be love. You know, uh, my role was to love my patients as they are in the moment in which I was visiting them. Now, you know, love can be misconstrued, of course, but in in the case of my work as a chaplain and, and as a as a pastor as well, uh, is really to accept people where they are and also try to move them along if they're if something is needed uh, for them. And that was certainly my role in the hospital. So I'd say beyond religion, beyond spirituality, but actually the heart of those to me is is love and the act of loving others. And Amber, over to you. Um, I don't know, you know, an, an artist can only hope that their work that our work communicates and connects. Um, but 
I, you know, after it's finished, I don't have any control over it. <laughs> so um, hopefully it brings people closer to the core of their existence. If, if that was your question, right? It is. Um, yeah. Uh, it, but it doesn't always. I mean, I've had screenings where people come up to me crying and feeling so moved and, and also, you know, where people walk out in the middle of my films. But I do want to say one thing, Carol, because we haven't, talked about this, but I actually do, um, I work with a, an amazing local organization called Empty Arms, which is an organization that um, uh, helps people suffering um, loss, like pregnancy loss and um, it, in uh, death, like stillborn and stuff like that. And so I just wanted to mention that, that I also do that work. I'm a facilitator for a miscarriage support group. Um, and I do feel like that work that I do is more direct. I just felt resonant with what you were saying. It's definitely not going into a hospital. And but but some of the people with uteruses in that group who have experienced loss, um, really intense medical things. I I feel like that's a part of like um, I don't know. I want to say like service, even though that sounds a bit cheesy. But that's something that I do on the side that feels really meaningful um to show up for people yeah and this this is of course carol mcmurrick started this group based on a loss in her own life she is a friend and an amazing giver is is her whole team and um you know i was privileged to work with them uh on a daily basis you know a weekly basis they're they're fabulous okay this is a neighbor chat we need to chat <laughs> tell, tell us the name of the group again please it's the arms Empty arms. Yeah, and it's one of the best organizations in in town, in my opinion. I'm just plugging them, basically. <laughs> well, they 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 um you know their work speaks for itself, and the love that she has poured into that. You know, one time I was at an event and I got to sit next to her father and talk to him about her work. It was just amazing. Uh, so uh, yeah, when somebody takes a painful situation where they're totally lost and turns it into giving support to others where they're you know people didn't used to use the word miscarriage they took the, the fetus or the whatever it is away and people couldn't even say goodbye so we've come a long way but it's a lot largely in this area because of her amazing work and yeah and yeah. where is this group located it's in Florence, but um, the groups are on Zoom. So we do have people from different parts of the country and there's not really anything like it um, in this country as far as my research has shown. So yeah. very special place. <laughs> reminds, reminds me of a conversation we were having on the show this week about perhaps the greatest short story ever written, uh, misattributed generally to, but we don't know who wrote it, to uh, Ernest Hemingway. And it's the story, the short story is, for sale, infant shoes, never worn. We're going to continue our conversation right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries on the corner in Northampton on the main Dragon Keen plus local burgie. Burgers and barbecue in Williamsburg. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation on this Have Faith segment where we feature uh, various members of the spiritual and religious community every week. We have with us on this Thursday, Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware, who has with her and us today, filmmaker Amber Bimack. We were talking about crucial pieces of human existence and some of the most uh, difficult situations that we face. And it has raised for me the question of the adage that there are no atheists in a foxhole. And I think it turns out, well, there actually are atheists and agnostics in a, in a, in a, in a foxhole. And I'm wondering, that, I'm wondering whether you can shed some light on uh, how people react in your experience when they're facing these crucial life and sometimes life and death decisions and whether that does or does not bring them back to some sense of what is at the essence, at the core of themselves. Let me start with you, if I might, uh, Reverend Carable. Yeah, so um, what I would say, it, so my, my, when I heard somebody didn't have a particular religious path or were atheist or agnostic, what I thought of was, the question I thought of asking them was, what gives you hope in this desperate situation? Are there any small bits or threads of hope. And then they would say things like, being out in the forest gives me solace and comfort. And for somebody else, they might be afraid of a forest, you know, but, but so that's what people say. They find 
in those situations uh, some things to give them hope. And that's what I tried to find regard regardless of their religious background. Um, and does that bring to you, bring you or them to uh, places that are uh, spiritual in a different way or, or not? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking maybe people revert, or not revert, but engage with a meditation or some kind of a mindfulness practice or something like that that is similar in some ways to holding on to a, a spiritual or religious kind of uh, tenant. Yeah, so you can, you know, when you're sick in body, mind, and spirit, um, one needs something to balance that off, right? Because you're like low, lowest of low points. And so I was always thinking, you know, what what's a small thing that could improve this person's hospital stay as they cope with these? In one case, it was putting up a picture of um, of a Native American. Uh, face for that person that made them feel connected to their own path. Um, so, you know, anything in that situation that one can find will be of use. For another person, it might be a psalm. Uh, somebody uh, during COVID was very sick and they asked for a particular psalm. I printed it out and I said, Here it is. And every time you feel your mind going south, you know, your attitudes feeling hopeless, read this every single time. And it was the one that they picked. So that's, those are two examples where something actually pretty concrete, a piece of paper with words on it can be helpful to someone. Amber, Amber. Bimak, you're, you're a filmmaker. Does, does film help people? Does, do images help people? Do stories help people in this kind of a situation? Um, I don't know if film helps people or not, really. I, I don't, um, I don't believe that it's a direct <laughs> helping of people. Like I was saying before, I make films because I sort of have to. But um, I think that, that in some practices, film can go beyond the screen to have impact in a community, or maybe people use it um, to advocate for, for human rights. There's many different ways, and I've also done a lot of community media pro um, projects where people are using media in order to communicate with government officials about um, things that are not working in their communities, and there's a lot of history about that. I think that story is really important. Media Mediated story is like increasingly and increasingly uh, more important because, in a way, um, those are the places that that connect with our physical realities and and it's almost like um, the two are almost inseparable at this point and so yes like how we create culture is in film and and we have a big responsibility as filmmakers to think about how we're creating story and who's represented and all can, of that can you tell us a bit about you and the films that you have made and the topics and subject matter yeah, um, I'm, you know, a queer feminist uh, performance artist, filmmaker, um, and a lot of my work has centered around borders and queer bodies and also landscape, like different um, ecosystems or different places. And so just the way that um, that bodies interact um, with with borders and with land. And so a lot of my work has been based around like 
a queer aesthetic, queer sensibility, um, thinking about queer representation in a non, you know, representing like a cisgendered female body outside of a male uh, gaze or desire. It has been a big um, thing, but I'm actually starting to work on a project about my uncle right now, which is what I got the Guggenheim for, um, who was sort of like a local legend in Cambridge. Uh, his name was Peter Zach Valentine. So that's a different, he was a magic, he was a little bit of a wizard um, who lived in Cambridge and that's my new film. So it's a bit different. Okay, we have a minute left. Your uncle, who you got a Guggenheim to make a film about, was a wizard. Tell us about that in half a minute, if you would, please. <laughs> he, he had a big battle with MIT um, in the in the 90s, and they were trying to gentrify the whole, na a whole neighborhood where he lived on disability in a four-story apartment building, and they wanted to level it. And he argued with them, saying that he, they, he couldn't be moved because it was his karmic realm and his metaphysical laboratory and after years of fighting at, with the tenants rights association behind him mit sold him that house for one dollar and moved the entire house to central square which probably some of you are familiar with um, and so he became the owner of this four-story house and became this like wizard magical figure in the city and the mayor would come see him and get advice and he knew the police and so he was a very um interesting man he died last august the man behind the curtains i am yeah. and i'm sorry for your loss i want to hear more about this film we'll do it more on another show thank you so much amber Mimac, and thank you so much reverend carol bull for bringing your friend and filmmaker with you to this this segment of have faith really appreciate you both being with us thank you for having us for having us Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP North. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. I'm Bill and, Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us a very, very special and distinguished guest, Ahmed White, who is an attorney, teaches law, labor and criminal law at the University of Colorado Boulder, graduate of Yale Law School, and has a new book, uh, especially timely and important now, the title of which is Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Professor Ahmed White, thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to begin with a sentence from your acknowledgments, if I might. Uh, 
And you say, in writing this book, you are especially beholden to my late father, Marion Overton White, who knew quite a bit about hard work and repression. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what it is about him and you that made you know a lot about hard work and repression that has brought you to this place in your life where you are teaching us all about the struggles of American working people, and in particular this book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Professor? Thank you. Thank, thank you for, um, for, for having me, and thank you for that question. Uh, my, my father's an interesting person. He grew up a uh, poor black man uh, in the Deep South um, and, and managed to become a lawyer and, and a civil rights lawyer. Um, in the 1960s, 70s, into the 2000s. He died just a couple of years ago. Uh, but he also uh, grew up on a farm, a small farm, and um, he never gave that up. He, he always um, worked hard and, uh, and, and, and always uh, remained kind of committed to doing farm work. Uh, and that is something that he expected of us, his children, and something I grew up doing. Um, my father, as a civil rights lawyer, uh, faced his uh, his share of, of persecution, uh, was nearly prosecuted a few times, uh, once for uh, the crime of criminal anarchy, which is not all that different than the kinds of crimes that these IWWs were prosecuted for a hundred years ago. Well, the IWW, uh, the Wobblies, by the way, uh, it wasn't clear to me for the first, I don't know how long, that wh where the word wobblies came from. Why are the international workers of the world, that union, why were they called, are called wobblies? It, it's still not 100% clear. I mean, there, there, the one time there was a sort of a consensus that the word uh, had its root in um, something unfortunate in the telling, the inability of some immigrant uh, groups to pronounce um, IWW or uh, something along those lines, but that explanation has fallen out of favor, and it uh, it remains kind of mysterious to this day why these uh, why these people were called that. And it's interesting because everyone called them that, uh, whether they were friend or, or enemy. And the Wobblies themselves call themselves Wobblies. So they owned it. I'd like to. Uh ask you to read a couple sentences from your book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. I often ask authors if they'd be willing to do that. And there is a short piece at, near the beginning of the book um, that I think gives us a good summary and allows uh, listeners to hear what the book sounds like. Would you be willing to read those couple sentences for us, please? Sure. So it goes... Nowadays, when histories of the civil rights and women's suffrage movements flourish, the story of the IWW is all but forgotten. Outside of leftists and labor circles, most people know little about the union, and they know even less about the people who formed its ranks, about America's own heroes of unwritten story, in whose struggles and sufferings can be found no better record of what this country was and what it is likely to remain. I was struck by that because as I was reading the book, I kept coming across names that actually jump out at me, and I think jump out at a lot of people. Uh, Joe Hill, Big Bill Haywood, Eugene Debs, Jack London, the author, Roger Baldwin, the uh, founder of the American Civil Liberties Union, 
uh, Upton Sinclair, the muckraking journalist who wrote The Jungle, and the list goes on and on. This story is actually a critically important story, and yet the Wobblies, the IWW, the International Workers of the World, is just a bit of a lost part of our history. I'd like to know why you think it's lost. I think one reason is that the organization was effectively destroyed um, by this this campaign of repression in the early 20th century and had very few members uh, during uh, the middle and latter parts of the 20th century when the labor movement came into its own. Um, there was, in some sense, a problem of no one being around to tell the union story, except in labor circles and in left circles, which is why the names you mentioned are, are pretty familiar to people who pay attention to those issues but aren't familiar at all once you get outside of those, uh, of, of those circles, uh, once you come into kind of conventional or, 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 um, um, or, or mainstream um, politics and media, they're just simply not known. And I think the other reason the IWW story isn't so well known is that some people find it an uncomfortable story um, to, to, to embrace and to think about because of what it reveals about this country and its, its penchant for repression. And that's especially true in this case where what happened to the IWW wasn't done to the union and its members only by conservatives or, or reactionary anti-union folk, um, but, but also by progressives and liberal types who played uh, an important role in the union's destruction. I think that's left some people uncomfortable with the IWW story. You point out in your book, Professor Ahmed White, that uh, persons, jurists, who are known or at least and renowned in some instances uh, for their uh, liberal or progressive in many, many, many circles of uh, views and uh, decisions, turn out to have been, well, part and parcel of the problem here. You specifically refer to uh, Felix Frankfurter, and, uh, and Justice Brandeis. Tell us what your view is about how the liberals and progressives failed to protect fundamental constitutional rights and, in particular, freedom of speech uh, for, well, those who would oppose the capitalist system. Yes, you, you name some of the key figures uh, who are culpable in that way. And I I think uh, what was true for them was true of a lot of other progressives or liberals who joined in the persecution of the IWW, which is that they just found this union too radical. Uh, they favored reform. Um, they were in many cases tolerant of a certain measure of radicalism, but not the IWW's radicalism. And I think that's especially interesting and tragic given that as radical as the IWW was, it was never violent and vicious organization um, that that some people assumed it to be. And this would have been plainly evident to anyone who paid close attention to the organization and what it was really about, including people like Frankfurter and Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, in, in some ways, they believed what they wanted to believe about the IWW, and that justified their support uh, for its persecution. I want to thank you for... Uh, making clear in this book, making clear in this book, uh, two pieces of law that I think people need to know about. One is what a conspiracy is. And the second is a phrase that you do not often hear, 
but was in a crucial part of the prosecutions when it wasn't for made-up charges like vagrancy uh, to persecute the IWW members. Uh, criminal syndicalism, something I never understood in school, but you make it very clear. Let's deal with those two concepts. And for you listening at home saying, what is Newman talking about here? You're going to learn something really interesting. Let's start with conspiracy. What is it? Yeah, con conspiracy is a, is a doctrine, um, a way of prosecuting people, typically for some underlying crime. Um, and so people are charged with, for example, conspiracy to commit robbery. It's a separate crime than robbery. You can be prosecuted for both conspiracy and the crime of robbery. And it's an old crime that has its roots uh, very much in uh, the history of labor repression. So one, one of the, the, the arenas in which conspiracy doctrine evolved was as a means of repressing labor unions. This preceded by many decades the founding of the IWW. But when it was the IWW's turn to be repressed, conspiracy played a crucial role, uh, most particularly in federal prosecutions of the IWW. Um, um, the better part of 200 IWWs were prosecuted for uh, essentially conspiracy to undermine um, the war effort in World War I, uh, mostly under something called the Espionage Act of 1917 where conspiracy uh, proved its value to prosecutors in these cases um, was in the fact that it, it doesn't require that prosecutors prove that the person charged with conspiracy did anything except agree with others to try to bring about this conspiratorial result. Um, in addition to that, there's a requirement that the defendants have engaged in what's called an overt act, but that's a very, very minimal uh, requirement and it doesn't apply to all defendants. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, these IWWs were prosecuted uh, essentially because uh, their membership was in the union was presented as proof of their agreement with each other to undermine the war effort. The prosecutors didn't have to prove they'd actually undermine the war effort, just that they'd agreed among themselves to do that. This was very effective, and about 160 Wobblies were convicted, most of them in three big trials uh, in Chicago, Sacramento, and Kansas City. And most all of those people were sent to Leavenworth uh, to serve uh, fairly long prison terms. You write in your book, for while conviction also requires that an overt act have been committed in furtherance of the conspiracy's purpose, that act need only have been committed by one of the defendants, and I point out the other defendants may not even have known about it, and furthermore, need not constitute a crime or even something essential to the conspiracy. I want to ask you about, and this is a bit of a detour, but... Progressives now are celebrating, generally, uh, the conviction of various right-wing uh, groups and members of those groups for their involvement in the January 6th insurrection and being convicted of seditious conspiracy. And I'm wondering whether you think that is a development in the law and the prosecution uh, that, well, progressives may come to regret at some point. Yes, I have deep misgivings about um, about this wave of prosecutions and the celebration of them. And you don't have to look even as far back as the IWW to find many, many examples of people on the left 
um, people of, of goodwill, whatever their politics, people who had done very much, being prosecuted for crimes of conspiracy, um, particularly crimes that involve, as you allude to, a kind of convergence of conspiracy and sedition charges. Anti-war activists, uh, civil rights activists, I mentioned my own father, and many people were actually prosecuted for some kind of uh, seditious conspiracies because they were involved in the civil rights movement. And of course, communist uh, and, and anarchist and Trotskyist of various sorts as well. So this is a fairly ominous development to, to justify this kind of thing, to embrace it, um, opens the door to uh, its continued use against, uh, against, against people of all kinds of political uh, persuasions, including progressives and, and leftists. So in that regard, I'm looking at page 189 of your book, and perhaps you could set up this story for us, because I'd like you to share, share it. This is, brings us close to the end of the, uh, re the reality of the Wobblies, of the IWW as a force in uh, America's struggle for uh, workers' rights. But perhaps you could set this up and read these few sentences for us, because I think it's really telling and moving. Yes, so this is a, a, a section of the book that um, describes the last years of uh, anti-IWW persecution. Uh, and it tracks with a point that I try to make throughout the book, which is that the union was persecuted uh, as long as and everywhere that it remained a viable organization. This wasn't the product of some kind of um, unbounded or uh, hysteria of some sort. It was actually a, a pretty sober and, and, and rational undertaking. And so the, the passage uh, reads uh, this way. Um, the following year, 1925, there were only a few prosecutions of wobblies on charges of vagrancy or other relatively minor crimes and no serious instances of vigilantism. The nightmare of persecution and terrorism is passing, said Archie Sinclair in the Union's Industrial Pioneer. The very last criminal syndicalism conviction of a wobbly in California occurred late that year in the small town of Susanville in the state's far northeast. The historical record does not reveal much about the trial or the defendant. What can be learned is that on November 9th, a jury deliberated for five hours before it convicted John Bruns, or Bruns, a native of Germany. That Bruns was sentenced to the usual one to 14 years and began serving his time at San Quentin three days later that he would not be released until November 9, 1927, and that his crime, according to his prison record, was IWW. We are speaking with Professor Ahmed White. His new book is Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. We'll be right back with more with Professor White right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. GreenfieldSavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. 
you love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413-545-0611. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 1015-1400-WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Professor Ahmed White. He's a professor of labor and criminal law at the University of Colorado Boulder, a graduate of Yale Law School, author of a number of uh, books, most recently, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers, just published, and with very, very uh, strong resonance of things happening in the United States today. And uh, just 100 years ago, uh, the, the historical record is really quite extraordinary. We played on the way out of the first segment the ballad of Joe Hill, who is referenced in your book a number of times, uh, Professor White. For those of our listeners who don't know, who is Joe Hill and why does his life matter? So Joe Hill was uh, a member of the IWW, an immigrant, um, a Scandinavian immigrant who emerged as uh, one of the union's leading songwriters. Um, this was significant because songs were essential to the IWW, to the way it defined itself, uh, the way it, it spread its message, um, the way that, uh, that, that these workers um, conducted themselves. Uh, as, as an interesting aside, uh, in many of the trials that the book documents of IWW is being prosecuted for um, vagrancy or criminal syndicalism or conspiracy or this or that, uh, it, it was not uncommon for the defendants to break out in song, uh, typically as an alliance. Well, many of those songs were written by uh, Joe Hill, who was uh, a gifted songwriter. Uh, he was also, though, as some people know, executed by the state of Utah for uh, a murder that he probably um, certainly did not commit. The matter remained um, clouded for many years, but, um, but, but some recent important work on uh, that story has, uh, has revealed that he almost certainly was not guilty. Um, he was not the only IWW to be, as the union put it, framed up um, on charges, on conventional criminal charges of murder 
uh, being the typical thing. And so this was not an uncommon uh, occurrence for union members to, to face conventional charges and to be unfairly prosecuted and convicted of them. One of the charges, uh, criminal syndicalism, a word I never understood, but syndicalism is what? And this was a charge invented and laws passed to target the IWW, the Wobblies. Is that right? That's right. And this, as from a, from a legal standpoint, maybe the most interesting part of this whole story is criminal syndicalism. And what is syndicalism? Were, tell, tell us what it means. So these are laws that were um, invented in 1917, the first part of 1917, for the express purpose of criminalizing the IWW. And they're very clever in the way they did this. Uh, the people behind them were big capitalists out west in initially in uh, Idaho and, uh, and Minnesota, a lumber and mining capitalist. They wanted to make being a member of the IWW a crime. And they knew, or at least they were told, you couldn't do that simply by enacting a law that said, if you're in the IWW, that makes you a criminal. That would be a bridge too far. That would be unconstitutional. And so what they came up with was something really clever, uh, a law that made it a crime advocate uh, what was called industrial or political change by means of sabotage, uh, violence, or some other kind of criminal act, and also made it a crime to be a member of an organization that advocated that kind of revolutionary change. They did this knowing that um, it would be very easy to convict IWWs with a crime like that. All you'd have to do is put the union on trial make it out to be an organization committed to these prohibited forms of change, and then rely on the fact that these defendants, when they're brought to trial, these wobblies, uh, would probably not deny membership in the organization, even if they could, and, and usually they didn't. And so this was a very effective way of making felons out of people who were uh, members of the union. These were state-level laws uh, enacted in uh, about 20 states, almost all of them west of the Mississippi, where in the late teens, early 20s, the IWW was especially active. And the IWW took a lot of its members and uh, its, its leadership from the mine workers out west. Is that right? That's right. Uh, the union uh, reached its, its kind of zenith of influence uh, in the late 19-teens. This, not coincidentally, was when the repression against the organization really escalated. And it achieved that, uh, organizing a handful of industries that were populated especially by migratory workers. So mining was one, agriculture was another, uh, lumber, uh, construction, and on the waterfronts. Those were the main industries where, oil I should add, those were the main industries where the union uh, achieved its greatest success in the, in the late teens and early 20s. We, we should know that syndicalism is defined as a movement for transferring the ownership and control of the means of production and distribution to workers' unions. Let me conclude by asking if I might, Professor Ahmed White, there is so much in your book, it is such a rich history, and there is so much resonance that what's go with what is happening in the United States today. I'm wondering if you would share with us what you think the most important lessons are, uh, what you've come away with and what you want us to understand from under the iron heel? 
I think the most important lesson, whether one is an IWW or sympathizes with their philosophy or not, but I think the most important lesson is to be skeptical about the power of the state, to be skeptical about um, one's liberal allies, um, and, and, and likewise, uh, to take seriously uh, how repression works. One of the major themes in the book is that repression undermined the IWW by destroying the lives of the people on whom it was inflicted. I think that's something often lost in more casual discussions of, of, of political or labor repression where we tend to focus on the heroism and the courage of the people on whom this kind of thing was inflicted. And there was courage and heroism aplenty in the IWW's experience. But there's also a more sobering story about the way the, these prison sentences, prosecutions, the beatings, uh, the, the acts of vigilantism, how they, again, destroy the lives of these people and in that way undermine this organization. There, that's a human side of this dynamic, this experience that I think must always be remembered. There's a price to be paid. We've been speaking with Ahmed White. His new book is Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. It is a rich history. It is a rich history that I encourage you to read. You can find the book through your local independent bookstore online, of course. Thank you so much, Professor Ahmed White. We really appreciate your time, your book, your insights, and your steadfastness in this fight for liberty. Thank you so very much. Thank you. And invitations, even from his best friends. They've been waiting. I can tell the been thinking. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The victim in the deadly motorcycle accident in West Springfield on Tuesday is now being identified. 24-year-old Edwin Perez of Chicopee died due to his injuries after crashing on the northbound side of I-91, just past exits 10A and 10B in West Springfield. The cause of the crash remains under investigation. The East Hampton Education Association is questioning the district on why they used outside contractors as registered behavior technicians through the field center in Northampton. The topic came up at Tuesday's virtual school committee meeting. Registered behavior technicians are paraprofessionals who provide direct support in a small group setting or one-on-one. -on -one. The Gazette reports the district pays between $18 to $20 per hour, but pays the three registered technicians from the field center more than $50 per hour. Superintendent Allison LeClaire said in an email that no grievance has been filed with her office. However, the paper reports the union is preparing a charge against the district, which will be filed with the State Department of Labor Relations, alleging violations of the contract and state labor law. After last week's freeze, Waitley's River Valley Farm has lost their blueberry crop for this year. Of over 10,000 bushes of blueberries, 70 to 80 percent succumbed to the freeze, resulting in a devastating loss to the farm. Owner Robert Sobieski has started a GoFundMe as his family relies on the blueberry crop to sustain the farm business. Sobieski explained that the funds will be used to sustain farm operations and invest in frost protection equipment. Mostly sunny and breezy today, a little brisk with a high of 64 to 68. 
clear tonight. Evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 36 to 42. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 70 to 74. And temperatures in the upper 70s and low 80s over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 101.5-1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. In a wake-up call to parents as well as big tech, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy says America's teenagers have a growing mental health problem and social media is probably a significant contributor. He says teens should be encouraged to use social media less. ChatGPT has gone mobile with a new free app available to iPhone and iPad users. OpenAI, the company behind the artificial intelligence chatbox, has taken its web-based AI platform to Apple users beyond their web browsers. A version is planned for Android. While some airlines are cutting their schedules, United has added a few flights. The carrier is expanding its footprint at its Denver hub, adding more than a dozen new flights and six new routes. Air travel is expected to increase dramatically this summer as the pandemic fades into the rearview mirror. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. And welcome back to the Take Five segment of our show, the wonderful weekly segment that we have. But before that, I would like to just uh, make an announcement. Um, there are three local groups that are dedicated to human rights and social justice. Uh, on this day, the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder, um, they are going to be commemorating that and to be speaking out and uh, uh, demonstrating their commitment to end racism at a number of different sites. These are sponsored by the Sunderland Human Rights Task Force, the Deerfield Inclusion Group, Hatfield Equity Alliance, and many others who want to speak out against racism. And uh, even though it'll be during the broadcast of this show at 4.30 today, Thursday, May 25th, and there are numerous sites. In Shelburne Falls, in front of the Sweetheart Restaurant, in Charlemont, two sites at the Little Red Schoolhouse on Route 2, Charlemont in front of the Federated Church, in Ashfield on the Town Common, in Sunderland at the Route 116 Bridge. You could find out more about it by going to the Trap, Trap Rock Center for Peace and Justice website and uh, find out where one of these um, important rallies are to commemorate uh, this dreadful anniversary of uh, the demonstration of racial injustice. Um, but 
Meanwhile, the studio is, uh, we are blessed today with two iconic musicologists who have made radio their forum to getting the word out. Uh, Glenn Siegel, we're blessed to hear from Glenn quite often. And his guest today, Tom Reaney, Jazz Alamode, so many years, so many tunes. Glenn, thank you for bringing Tom here. Thank you, Buzz. It's great to be here. Um, let me introduce Tom. Um, Tom was honored uh, by the Jazz Journalists Association with the Willis Conover Marion McPartland Award for Career Excellence in Broadcasting in 2019. In addition to hosting Jazz a la Mode since 1984, Tom writes the Jazz Blog and produces the Jazz Beat podcast at NEPM. He began working in jazz radio in 1977 at WCUW, a community-licensed radio station in his hometown of Worcester, Mass., and he holds a B.A. from UMass Amherst, where he majored in English and African American Studies. Welcome, Tom. Good morning, Glenn. Thank you. Nice yeah. to be here. Well, let's begin at the beginning, Tom. How did you first get interested in jazz and blues? Jazz. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have to credit the Ed Sullivan Show. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you see Ross on Roland Kirk? I, I'm, a, I'm asked the question often enough that, I, that I, I, I know that that's where it really began. We'll see Mahalia Jackson. Mm -hmm. uh, gospel music. Uh, long before I had any comprehension of what was going on, I found myself quite moved by uh, Mahalia Jackson's gospel singing. And then seeing Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and other icons of jazz on Ed Sullivan. And, and then as a 13-year-old, my dad took me to see Ellington at the Worcester Auditorium, um, not to inculcate an appreciation in me for jazz, just because it was a major civic event. It was Duke Ellington Day in the city of Worcester. He had been given the keys to the city, an honorary doctorate from Assumption <clears throat> College. And, um, and so I went and um, I knew who Ellington was, and I was really touched even deeper by the charisma uh, of the man. The music got to me too, but the charisma more than anything at that stage. And then uh, just a few years later, I saw Ellington um, on my own uh, and then, uh, you know, five or six times subsequent to that. Uh, so those were really formative, just seeing Duke Ellington, who remains, you know, um, kind of a personal hero um, uh, of mine. But, but I was just responsive from very early in my life to uh, black music and Motown and soul music. And then uh, Ike and Tina Turner, I'm listening to them this morning, and, and, uh, and blues uh, became part of uh, what I... Um, gained an appreciation for by the late 60s through Muddy Waters and B.B. King and Paul Butterfield and people like that. But it was, uh, uh, there were experiences like that with the major names of jazz and blues, but also right in Worcester, we had a core group of, of older black musicians who played jazz and, um, and, and made a practice of it on Thursdays and Sundays every week. I was very fortunate that that I was um, of an age where I was able to connect with uh, these Thursday and Sunday sessions that they had at a place called the Kitty Cat Lounge. And um, they were essentially jam sessions, but there was a core group of players who were more my parents' age and even older, but they were great, great musicians and had really elected to uh, maintain, uh, you know, local connections, raise families. They had day jobs, and they were some of these uh, players were uh, well-known names in the city, um, but uh, that was really formative to see the music in that type of setting, um, a real community, communal type of uh, experience that I felt for 
for uh, sort of the call and response uh, experience of, um, of jazz, of, of black music in general. And those are some of the early steps that I yeah, beautiful. had in my life. And mm. tell us the origin story of Jazz a la Mode. How did the program begin? How did you find your way to uh, NEPM, known then as WFCR? Right. Well, I had done radio in Worcester for several years, uh, jazz full-time. It was a Monday through Friday, uh, 10 a.m. to 1 every day. It was kind of like a dream come true. And um, anyway, um, I went to the university um, and uh, UMass, and uh, I came back to Amherst in the early 80s, uh, uh, was doing some work with Archie Shep, among others, and um, and I, I think and, I've read you you majored in African American studies back then. Yeah, I had uh, there was a program at UMass called uh, BDIC, Bachelor's Degree with Individual Concentration. It's an excellent uh, academic, um, um, you know, curriculum blender in a way. And I was able to bring in English and um, and uh, Afro uh, Afro Am as we called it then, through um, yeah. Through BDIC, thanks, thankfully, and uh, and that was great. You know, I was a, I was kind of a grown up by then. I had a pretty good sense of, uh, you know, of uh, black history, of black literature. Uh, You've got and, everything uh, except the pigmentation. Yeah, right. I, I know. I needed that, but I also had the gift of uh, professors who gave me one-on-one tutorials, three or four of them, during a two-year period there on Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison, and it was a really excellent program. But uh, but, you know, I saw an article in the paper about uh, WFCR hiring a new general manager. Her name was Joan Rubell, and I recognized Joan's name from community radio. She was at WORT in, West, in Madison, Wisconsin. I was at WCUW in Worcester. We'd been at conventions, and we had hosted, you know, a community radio convention in Worcester a year or two earlier. Anyway, I read the interview. I, you know, of course, my, my attention... Uh, perked up immediately at Joan's name, and I saw a mention in there that they might be interested in adding some jazz to their format, so I dropped them a note, and, and, uh, and I was, uh, you know, in the door. Yeah, and that was... Uh, 39 years ago. Thir- yeah, <laughs> thanks for doing the math there. Yeah, and... Uh, Who's counting? In the last few years, you've cut back your involvement on Jazz Alamo to two nights a week while you continue your blog and podcast... Are you calling this a semi-retirement? Yeah, exactly, Glenn. Yep, mm-hmm. Semi-retirement. Yep. Mm-hmm. A full retirement with a part-time job. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. And have you taken on any new uh, jazz-related projects? Uh, mm, I'm not really sure. Yeah, uh, just I, I, one-offs. I mean, you're still uh, active writing and... Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah writing in the podcast yeah. and, um, and um, interviewing, you know, writers and some musicians here and there and... Uh, and uh, hosting local um, events like the screening of a Max Roach documentary uh, uh, just three weeks or so from now, June 15th, at the Center for the Arts in Northampton. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really an honor we're going to be uh, uh, giving the East Coast premiere screening of this brand-new film made by Ben Shapiro and Sam Pollard. And if uh, Sam's name may be known to you, he's collaborated with Spike Lee. He's... Uh, I believe he's won an Academy Award in numerous um, uh, Peabody's and such for uh, television productions. Uh, he did the recent three-part Bill Russell documentary that oh. uh, I, th- I thought was outstanding. So Sam is um, a, a long-experienced documentary filmmaker, and he will be coming to Northampton, and uh, I'll 
conducted Q&A with him as part of this uh, evening of the screening of the Max Roach Yeah, And Avery Sharp will be on the panel, too, as I uh, understand it? I, I don't Do know, you know that level of detail yeah. yet. Yeah, mm -hmm. that would be great. And yeah. we'll be a guest next week on Take 5 oh, right ah, here. Beautiful. Okay. okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Max is, uh, you know, for listeners uh, who may be interested, Max Roach was a one of the major names in jazz uh, um, as a drummer, uh, one of the most influential drummers in, in music history, as Max's influence is so pervasive, you might say, that uh, even people who have never heard of him who played drums have been influenced by Max Roach. He pretty much established the modern style or prototype for drumming. But he had an affiliation with the University of Massachusetts for a number of years and helped to, um, part of the group that uh, really um, uh, uh, moved the, uh, uh, the agenda forward such that the university eventually established a major in jazz and African-American music, and Max was a significant uh, figure in that um, evolution. Tom Reedy, that, that's a uh, perfect segue, because after the break, I want to ask both of you. You are both musicologists. You're not DJs that just play music. You have uh, academic passion for understanding the music, musicians that you're about to play, you, Greg, uh, you did it, um, Glenn, over all those years that you were hosting uh, jazz radio, and you too, Tom. I want to ask you both about why that approach, why it's important to know more about the musicians than just hearing their music right after this break. Thanks, Buzz. Trouble of the world Trouble of the world this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 12.40. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. 
Do you use home oxygen? Do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns? No one should smoke in your home. There's more oxygen in the air, which makes fires burn faster and hotter. Furniture, clothes, bedding, and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily. Keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source. For more information, call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov DFS. Breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with our uh, Take 5 segment, uh, a weekly segment. Glenn Siegel is our uh, host of Take 5 every other week, shares it with Ruth Griggs, and he's brought an extraordinary, iconic um, person into the studio today in Tom Reaney. These two, uh, Glenn Siegel and Tom Reaney, uh, have been broadcasting for many years, and uh, their careers have intersected. And I, before the break, asked them both a question. I want to start with uh, you, Tom Reaney, which is uh, you are a musicologist. You're not just someone who plays music. You explain music. And as you play music, you introduce it, sometimes the, the actual context in which a particular song was written or performed or information about the performers. Um, why do you think that's important to understand the music uh, rather than just letting the music speak for itself? Well, um, I think I would begin, Buzz, by just saying that jazz is not the music of the mass culture. We don't have mass media exposure of jazz the way we do rock, pop, hip-hop, what have you. So I think that, uh, and I've learned over the years, that people appreciate a little context uh, for what they're hearing, because in many cases they're hearing music or a performer who they've never heard of. So it helps, you know. Jazz is a massive um, thing. I mean, Duke Ellington decades ago said, what does it even mean? It's, it's an umbrella for so many different styles. And, um, and I think people often feel a little intimidated about taking that first step into this great ocean called jazz and wondering, you know, is this traditional, is this swing, is this bebop, modern, free, whatever, and where are these people from and all that. So context, I would say. Nailed it. Glenn Siegel. Yeah, I would totally agree with what Tom said. And um, I've noticed in, you know, I present a lot of concerts, live music, and uh, I've noticed how much the audience responds to uh, the talk in between songs, getting to know the artist, um, the story behind compositions, uh, anecdotes. You know, jazz performers as a group are great storytellers, you know, through their music, but also um, through their voice. And um, so that context really puts people at ease. And uh, I, I agree with Tom so many people who come to my concerts don't know the musicians. Your that, concerts being jazz shares. Jazz, Pioneer Valley jazz shares, yeah. Um, don't know the music, don't know the musicians. And so getting to know them uh, from the stage, but also afterwards, you know, we usually have receptions afterwards and, you know, there's very easy contact between audience and, and musicians. And that's really valuable to to people, not only to get their records and CD signed, but just to ask questions about the music, about and, their background. And I just want to follow Glenn Siegel and then hear from Tom Reaney. Do you think that the improv core 
at jazz. It, what makes us, the surprises jazz gives us. Do you think that has something to do with why you, because your knowledge, Glenn Siegel, is encyclopedic, as is yours, Tom Reaney. Do you think that's part of it as well? That music is not just a ditty that repeats a one, four, five. It goes somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the barriers is that, um, you know, in the pop world, you know, you see audiences singing every note along with the performers. That's not really possible in the jazz realm. And, uh, and so you need something else to, you know, grab onto. Yeah, Any, anything to grab onto, including just that, you know, the one little anecdote or contextual bit of information, I think... Uh, uh, can be helpful uh, in that way, yeah. Tom, I wanted to uh, ask you how you'd characterize the current jazz scene in the Connecticut River Valley. How has it changed in the 40-odd years you've called this region home? Oh, that's a big question, Glenn, and it's a big region, but uh, I'm generally always heartened by uh, what we have here um, within uh, you know, uh, uh, a short drive uh, from where we, uh, where we call home. Um, uh, from my Worcester days, uh, even before I was in radio in Worcester, I was connecting to Hartford, um, Real Artways and other venues there, the Hartford Jazz Society, um, all kinds of presenters and, and uh, community organizations in Hartford were very impressive and have been for a long time And uh, having the music uh, uh, out in the community. And, uh, you know, we've seen the same here in uh, Springfield and uh, in, in southern Vermont, uh, the Vermont Jazz Center. And, of course, what you've done at the university over the years and through Pioneer Valley Jazz Shares. And Paul Arslanian, uh, a great pianist um, who really kind of um, spearheaded this uh, Northampton Jazz Workshop about uh, oh, a dozen or more years ago, which has been a regular weekly presentation of music with guest artists, uh, Coming to the area, I think all have made this uh, help maintain uh, this area as a very uh, jazz-rich uh, uh, area. And of course, we have the Northampton Jazz Festival, which is sponsoring that Max Roach film presentation on June fifteenth, and then has the festival itself in the last weekend of September. Uh, that all adds to the uh, mm -hmm. richness of our jazz scene. And, and I just yeah. want to say, if, if in the big stage. If there was no more jazz ever recorded, we have enough to go 10,000 years. It is so rich. But there is nothing like live music. And the fact that we have these incredible performers performing here, some come from far away, but some are just, you know, homegrown right here. Mm -hmm. It really makes life wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would agree, Buzz. Live is the way to hear and experience jazz. Uh, um, and a music, or, or I, I would say any music that's sort of challenging and complex is, um, is uh, you, you're one step closer to the source and to understanding, I think, and seeing it uh, perform live. Yeah. And, and how about the wider jazz world? What's your uh, assessment of the state of jazz more generally? Glenn, I've been saying the same thing for a long time. Jazz is in great condition on the bandstand. Phenomenal. The continual numbers of musicians, of young musicians who train, who go through the incredibly demanding, exacting requirements to become jazz musicians, they're all over. 
uh, it's a wonderful thing, but the, uh, the jazz audience is where continual development and encouragement uh, needs to take place, and that's mm. part of what my job is, you know. Yeah. Uh, put more, we need more folks in the seats, as it were. Mm-hmm. We do need more folks in the seats. This is just, uh, and by the way, at the Drake on Tuesday, I think Freddie Bryant, the great uh, guitarist, is going to be joining the Green Street Trio with Paul Arslany and George Kay and John Fisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been a real treat for me. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you so much, Tom. Yeah, let's do a part two. Mm -hmm. Let's do a part two. I would love that. Meanwhile, um, for everyone else, all you listeners, thank you so much for joining us on Talk the Talk, and remember to walk the walk. Take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? It's the music you grew up with. WHMP and the news will be right here when you get back. The Valley's pure oldies, 96.9 and 100.5. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov WIC to find out if you qualify. This message is brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. WHMP Northampton.